Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. And my friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Kurt, it's oh. so good to see you today. Man, Pepper, it's been, uh, for our audience, we, we all would know this, but uh, in since we last recorded, it's been, I think, at least six weeks or more. Yeah, you've had 37 vacations, so we weren't able to, <laughs> we weren't able to record between now and then. So. <laughs> well, the, the easiest way to get from Washington to Washington is through Barbados and the Caymans. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's, that's so, how I get to work know, every morning. Right. You commute by way of <laughs> Barbados and the Caymans. I do that mentally every morning, yeah, but I don't I, actually do it physically. Gosh, I wish that were true, that I was in the in Barbados and the Caymans. But man, it no, is good to see have, you. Yeah, it's been a, been a minute. And um, we were talking before we started recording today that just uh, how much we missed each other and yeah. just how good it is to be together. And, yeah. you know, I, I feel that. Um, I feel that time, hmm. you know, I remember a couple of weeks ago, I was looking at the calendar trying to figure out when we were going to see each other again, when we were going to record. And I was like, wait a minute, that's way too long, way right. too far away. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You, you, at some point you, I, 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 I don't remember where it was in this space in between you, you texted me something. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't just text him. Like I got to call him. I got, I, yeah. I got, I got, I just got to hear his voice for like, Two minutes. That's a pretty common occurrence. I'll text you. <laughs> I'll be working and I'll just I'll, I'll text Kurt and and, uh, and then the phone rings right away. It's like nope, text isn't good enough. So cool, man. Yeah, it's because oh uh, gosh, yeah, it's just so good. And dude, like your haircut, it looks super today. I love it. Just looks like a Thank recent. Looks like that. a recent cut. Yeah, I I, I went and, and and saw Donnie up at Clifton Barber's uh, a couple of days ago, and yeah. he gave me the high and tight. All I'm right. happy about it. Love that. Ready, ready for uh, at least spring, if not uh, summer, just around the corner here. Yeah, I hope spring gets so, here. Yeah, well, it, it, honestly, I will say it has. Um, it's been a weird spring, but it's you know not to, you know talking about the weather on a podcast is not the most exciting thing, right? But but what is very cool is outside my my back window. There's a small woods, small mm-hmm. woods, and we went in a matter of a week. Where it warmed up a little bit, and every tree has just got this brand that brand new, new growth green. That's mm. just it's just beautiful, and yeah. um, it's it's uh, spring's my favorite for yeah. sure. Yeah. So today we are uh, here in episode eleven of uh, the fourth season of the Being Known podcast, and we are talking about um, trauma this whole this whole season. Mm. Um, if you're just jumping in. Um, you know, stay with us today if you want, but I would recommend going back to the beginning because um, we've talked uh, about um, pretty much every aspect of trauma throughout this season. And uh, today, uh, we're going to be talking about healing trauma, the wholeness of integration. Mm-hmm. And I will would like to mention a few resources just before we jump in that Kurt has uh, researched for us. We have Boundaries for Your Soul by Allison Cook and June Miller. We have which may, this, this may be my favorite name, title for a book ever, Try Softer by Undi Kolber. I, lo- I just love that, yeah. the, 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 what that conjures up in me. Um, Brain Spotting by David Grand and Generations Deep by Gina Berkmeyer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, those are, uh, th- those are resources I, 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 that I uh, would encourage our 
listeners to check out, wade into, um, be aware that uh, you can feel free to take your time to go through them because they are helpful works. They're they're serious works, and by serious, I don't mean uh, gravely serious. I mean they are weighty, and they are they're going to be uh, really, I think, uh, worth your time. As as have as as would be all the different resources that we've um, offered uh, over the course of this season, and um, I think just Allison Cook and I think her, and and it's it's Kimberly Miller um, who's the oh. uh, the second author. Yeah, Kimberly Kim Miller um, for Boundaries of Your Soul. Um, and, uh, you know, today's episode, Pepper, uh, in, in some respects is going to be a, a kind of like a culmination episode of all these different things that we've talked about. And I want to just relay one particular story that in some respects captures a number of these different features. And, and this person's name is Emily. And uh, we've, we've talked about different kinds of trauma and both uh, trauma of the neglect and the trauma of active wounding. We've also talked about what we call large T and small T trauma, this notion that we can have large singular events that happen to us, or we can have multiple smaller events that happen over the course of a long period of time that become more complex because it's not as easy for us to historically just silo them into a space of a singular event. There's different kinds of trauma. And then we have all these different features that trauma, you know, uh, exhibits. It, it, it's, it's embodied, it's relational, it becomes systemic it, through our beginning in our, often in our families, but also can work its way out into uh, the church's educational systems. Um, it can be generational in nature, as we've talked about. And, uh, you know, when in this, this podcast's name, the, the Being Known podcast, it, it, we're working with the assumption that we are uh, having these conversations at this intersection of uh, what it means for us to be people of faith, what it means for us to follow Jesus, and using this language and understanding the mechanics of interpersonal neurobiology. And at the same time, we would say that there's nothing that we're talking about that is not spiritual in nature. Everything is spiritual in this sense, from the standpoint of the biblical narrative. At the same time, there are certain elements of our life experience that take on a particular characteristic of spirituality because of what it tends to be related to, because it might take place in the church, or not uncommonly because certain acts of traumatic experience um, are kind of embedded using language of faith. And we'll talk about that a little bit as well. But, you know, kind of uh, distilling all this, uh, Emily is the person that I want to just share her story briefly with. She was a person who was the youngest of three siblings who grew up in a home uh, in which her mom, unfortunately, had some real challenges with mood problems. And these mood problems weren't just that she would get depressed, but she would also become, she, she could become uh, pretty expansive in her mood and was only later in Emily's life diagnosed with bipolar disorder. But what this would mean functionally would be that she could do everything from being erratic and impulsive and angry with all three of her kids, but she could also then become completely withdrawn and disappear for a week at a time into her bedroom. And the kids were just kind of having to, you know, make their way through life. 
there was uh, a fair number of years between Emily and her two older siblings. And so in some respects, once they left the house, there was a lot of uh, this chaos uh, that was in the house uh, for Emily that, uh, that for which she was the only sibling that really encountered this. And it, it also, unfortunately, was the case for her that as her mom, as, as time moved on, her mom's situation got worse over time. And so in some respects, things were even more difficult in the house uh, after Emily's siblings left the house. And so was, there were some things that they actually didn't even have the opportunity to see that had happened. One of the other challenges, of course, was that, you know, Emily's dad, uh, well-meaning though he was, got to a point where he really couldn't tolerate this anymore. And when Emily was about 14, he left. Um, He filed for and uh, got a divorce. Um, Within about two years, was married to another person, uh, began to have their own family. And this became, and, and, you know, offered for Emily to come and live with them. Uh, the challenge was that in, his, in this new family, you know, Emily was told, well, you can come and live with us, but you need to know that, like, this is our family. This is not yeah. your family. This is our family. You need to be, I'm happy for you, you know, all the things. Now, of course, too, you know, if, you, if we peel the onion back a little further, we would see that, you know, Emily's mother's, father, uh, so Emily's grandfather, who had died before Emily came into the world, had been a bit of an absent alcoholic father. He wasn't violent, but he was absent. And so Emily's grandmother was basically having to do whatever she could to like, just make things work in living in this house with an alcoholic husband. And Emily's father's mother had also been quite depressed. And so you've got these generational forces that are rolling downhill toward her. And the other thing that was also noteworthy was, of course, is that Emily in in her family, her father and mother, uh, you know, they were in church every Sunday. And these were people who, uh, in their best moments, were Godfather followers, uh, wanted to be faithful in that sense. And interestingly enough as well, when Emily's mother was not in one of her either more uh, chaotic or absent places, it turns out she could actually be quite present with Emily and kind and uh, attuned to her, but it it. You know, you just never knew when it was going to disappear and move into some other place. And Emily kind of, she's really smart, kind of sought academics as a refuge, able to do that, goes off to college. And when she gets into college, she finds a church community that actually takes her in and is care and cares for her and so forth. But was also a church community that was kind of really committed to a particular way of engaging the world that didn't really pay much attention to emotional states. They, you know, they, they were, the, the way they operated was to make sure that their people believed the right things, but they weren't really very sensitive to the whole notion of what was it like for you to have these kinds of emotional wounds. They weren't paying that much attention to that. 
good people, but not a lot of practice or experience with that. And so what this means is that Emily has a life in which she now finds a church home, but what she doesn't know is that there's all of this payload of trauma that she's walking around with. And when she eventually, I mean, I I started to meet with her when she was in her 30s, Uh, eventually when she met and married a man and they started to have kids, you know, there were all this, there's all this other residue from her, from her parents that would start to come up because, you know, the parents would, you know, mother as chaotic as she would wanted to see the grandkids now. And now her father wants to see the grandkids, despite the fact that, you know, she wasn't really part of the family and all the things that would happen. But what was really striking for her was that you know, the, the, the people that she really wanted to have connection with to help her figure out and, and like make, sort out like my history were her siblings, her older siblings. And her older siblings wanted nothing to do with this story. And so when she would try to talk to her older siblings about this, they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Hmm. Now, you know, who knows? I mean, I would... Probably, you know, either they they didn't remember because they weren't there when so much of it happened and or they were also working really hard to protect themselves against their own memory of the things that have happened. But, you know, it it first started, I mean, what what brought her into, uh, what brought her into my office was uh, she was, you know, she had had a baby and it was her second child and this second child, she started to get depressed and started to have panic events in the wake of this because there were other family members that were now wanting to come and see and so forth. And she wanted nothing to do with the family. And she's like, I don't know what's wrong with me. Like, why don't I want to have anything to do with my family? And as we started to name some of her story, we started to see uh, all these different things, all these different elements of her trauma that, that she'd had both neglect and that she'd had wounding that there were particular incidents, large T trauma, these things, and there, were all the, and then there was also a collection of a complex history of these things. We started to notice, even in individual work, like where her distress started to show up, her panic, like where was her panic really beginning? It would begin in her chest, and it would work its way actually to a point where her hands were tingling. We would name these kinds of things. Of course, we were able to identify the relational and the systemic and the generational but also as well, like how the spiritual element of, you know, she had, she had found, she and her husband had found themselves in a church fellowship that was really paying a lot of attention to believing the right things, but were not very open to the, we might say the right side of the brain. We're not really very open to the other elements of this. They, they didn't have a lot of practice doing that. And so in many respects, it just reinforced the sense of denial that she had to, you know, that she had to maintain in order to keep herself from really feeling so dysregulated. And we began eventually, she, you know, she, uh, as, as we've talked about in previous episodes, uh, we really believe in the power of community and what it means for us to be known in the context of this community. And Emily had done a, a ton of work in individual work, but she eventually joined a confessional community. And in one of those, in, in, in one of those uh, sessions in the confessional community, there was a moment in which she was starting to talk about her interactions with her siblings and she was getting to a point where she was thinking, I just can't have contact with them because anytime I'm with them, they just want to pretend that like there's nothing else going wrong here. And uh, 
but one of her sisters who lived out of state was about to come into town and the other one, they wanted to get together. And it was just really, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be with him. It's upsetting. And as she's telling this story, she literally starts to, her body starts to curl up into a ball as she's sitting on the couch. And we just pause the moment. And we pause the moment to just invite not just her, but everybody in the room to just pay attention to what, she, like, what was happening in her body. And this, uh, this points to what we talked about in our last episode, this whole notion of awareness. That when we talk about the healing of trauma, that the healing of trauma begins with awareness. And we like to say that secure attachment or earned secure attachment begins with the newborn or the infants or the 59-year-olds growing awareness of the other's awareness of me. I mean, I think about our friendship and I think about... How lucky you are. How just unbelievably lucky that you found yourself in a friendship with Pepper Sweeney. I mean, come on. I mean, I know. I mean, like, that's like winning the lottery. I know it is because, like, how do I rate that I get to be a friend? With Dude. the most beautiful man in the world. Uh, I mean, I, yeah. I don't, I, I, I how was, do I rate? Yes, I, I, I ask myself how I can. <laughs> how uh, you can put up with me. You're like, <laughs> you're like, you're also just, you're also just as flummoxed about how this has happened. How has this come to be? In the no, course of, say in the course of history. Because I, I have not had, have, like, <laughs> didn't I have, weren't there, weren't there four billion other options? <laughs> I got stuck with Dr. Desire. Oh, my gosh. Why is it this guy? Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, okay, the whole thing about, uh, I mean, I, uh, a small example, just this past six weeks, just missing being with you. Like, I've been so looking forward, like, you know, you might not, you wouldn't say this in typical conversation, but like you're saying like, my gosh, I can't wait to be back in the room where I know that Pepper will be aware of me. Hmm. And in that moment for Emily, the fact that we weren't just aware of her in some global sense, but we were actually aware of her body, like that she was getting all balled up. Right. And we were aware of the detail, aware of the distress, aware of the anguish that she was demonstrating. And I remember just saying to her, hey, I just noticed this. Do you, do you notice what you're doing with your hands? Tell me, tell me, just tell me what you sense in your hands. Just, just be aware. We're, we're not, we're not even saying that like, we didn't say like you shouldn't feel that. We're just saying like, just notice. And we went from her hands to her arms to, and you know, and to her, and, and like that she was hunched over and that her legs were kind of like tight up. And I just said, I just want to invite you to like, just allow your hands to rest on your lap for a moment. And then I said to the rest of the, I just want everybody else, if you can all do that. And I said, what, what, what else, where else are you feeling? She said, I'm, I'm, I'm breathing really, really shallow, really fast. And my chest is tight. I said, I just want you to take your hand, one, your right hand, just, just 
Allow it to rest on your chest. Just allow yourself to feel your hand on your chest and allow your chest to feel your hand and your hand to feel your chest. Just focusing your attention. And I just want you to allow yourself to breathe. I want everybody else, would everybody else do that? And everybody did it. And Pepper, it was stunning to watch everything about her physicality change in a matter of about 60 seconds. And this whole notion, she later reported that one of the things that made such a difference for her in that moment was when she noticed everybody else in the room put their hand on their chest and be present with her. And in this way, we weren't just being present in some abstract way, in some you know psychological way. We were being present with her in an embodied way, joining with her. And as we've often said before, shame is like this locomotive. And if we're going to move it, we need to build a bigger, we need a bigger train. And this became a bigger train for her. And in that way, we were noticing the awareness brought an embodied presence to bear for her on her behalf in ways that were completely antithetical to the way she had not been noticed first by her parents, then by her, even by her siblings, even by her church. And then I said, in the presence of this group, I said, gosh, you know, this reminds me of the story of the woman with the bleeding condition. And our listeners, if you're familiar with this, there's this story is told in a number of places in the Gospels, but I'm really struck by the fact that, and the way that it's told, its most lengthy version is in Mark's Gospel, which interestingly enough, is the version, is the gospel that is most fast moving. It is the fastest paced gospel. And it's striking that Mark took the time to slow the story down because here in Mark 5, 25 to 34, we have the story of the woman who had this bleeding problem. She'd for, for, for years had gone to see many, like she'd suffered at the hands of many physicians is what the text reads many therapists, right? Many people had tried to help her without, without effort. And then what we see is her sense. Of course, we're hearing this story afterwards. And she thought to herself, if I just touch the hem of his garment, she has a sense of what her problem is. And she's correct as far as she knows, right? The sense is that I have this bleeding problem. If I touch the hem of his garment. And so her, her, her mission is to be healed, but very silently, very quietly. She's going to keep things out of the public eye. Because for her to have this kind of a problem would have necessarily been a very shameful thing. And then, like, you know, things go off the rails for her because she touches the hem of his garment and, like, he just stops. Right. And this is when, like... You know, if I'm if I'm her and I'm working through the crowd and I get down in the crowd and then I go and I find the hem and I just touch his hem and I'm like, Phew, I've done it. And she feels the healing power come and she's like, this is great. I'll just go back to my house or I'll disappear into the crowd. And he's like, whoa. And, you know, if you've ever been in one of those situations where you've kind of done something wrong, but you think you've gotten gotten away from it. And then like it goes like five seconds and then and then, and then the teacher says, excuse me, some, Kurt, do you have something you'd like to share with the class? It's in one of these moments where what he does, he sees that her condition of bleeding is only the tip of the iceberg. He is aware 
He's that sensitive. And this notion that our trauma requires that kind of awareness, we long for that. But the thing is, we, we don't often know that. And we think like, gosh, I just got to get rid of the symptoms. I just got to get through my day. I just got to, just like her, I just got to get through this, this, this much without recognizing that real healing in, entails Jesus coming for everything. And who touched me? Like, well, I'm, I'm not going to answer that question. Like, no, no, I didn't. Like, and then trembling says, she acknowledges. And then he says, your faith has made you. He calls her my daughter. He calls her my daughter. He, her, like, again, we, we have to recognize that in, in that time, for anyone who was not in your biological family to call you their brother, sister, daughter, son, like, it wasn't done. To, to call someone their daughter, their son, their father, their mother, was a, was a word of intimacy, was a word of being drawn. He wasn't just healing her. He was saying, you're mine. The healing of trauma is not just intended to eliminate our symptoms. It's intended to draw us into a family of belonging. And so this first passage then reminds us that there are certainly are tactical things that we need to do, right? There are things that we want to do in the same way that first Jesus does heal the bleeding. He stops the bleeding. We stop the hemorrhaging. And in a lot of the work that we do, there are a lot of different things that, that we tactically want to try to employ. We've named some of these things with some of our resources. We've, we've talked about internal family systems, uh, this way of imagining how the mind works that was developed by Richard Schwartz back a number of years ago and uh, we, that we read about in uh, Allison Cook and Kimberly Miller's book, Boundaries for Your Soul. That's a thing that I would really uh, advocate for, for us. You know, it's, it's an accessible read that really helps us recognize that so many of our traumatized parts, we just want to get rid of them. Just like the woman with the bleeding dyscrasia, she really wanted to get rid of some of those parts of her. She just wanted the bleeding to stop. And Jesus is bringing every part into the room. There is a particular intervention called brain spotting. It's kind of sounds kind of weird, but the, the, the book that we mentioned, Brain Spotting, um, at the top of our hour by David Grand is also, uh, it's just another form of intervention, not unlike EMDR. Uh, there is work that we do with, there, there is an exercise that we do called the formation of a trauma egg. And this, this, it's a way of drawing out, literally like drawing out on a large sheet of paper, various, uh, you know, events, uh, that we have memory of, of traumatic events that we've had in our life, sharing that with somebody else, because what we're doing is we're really doing what the woman did. Like we're bringing ourselves to other people in order for those other people to provide for us healing of the acute symptoms, but we're not stopping with that in the same way that Jesus didn't stop with that. One of the first things that we then see when he calls her daughter is he's doing what he did actually earlier in Mark's gospel. He's thoroughly upending the notion of family. This whole notion that when he calls her daughter, that when we are working with people who've, been, who've had trauma, what we really want them to know is that like, I want you to have the sense that I see you as my daughter or my son or my brother or my sister. And those kind of family ties are ties that don't ever dissolve. 
So we're not just healing symptoms. We're drawing people into a state of belonging in a family. In Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 34, we see the first classic psychiatric diagnosis of Jesus. When he's healing people and he's in the synagogue and he's upsetting the Pharisees and so forth and so on, and the text reads that his family came to find him because the neighbors had said that he had lost his mind with all these things that he was doing. And he goes and he's teaching in a home. And there's so many people packed in the home that when the mom, when his mother and brothers come to find him, they can't get in. And they send someone up with the word, your mother and brothers are here. And then, you know, he does this very strange, unthinkable thing for a firstborn Jewish male in public to say, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? The one who does the will of my father, he is my brother, she is my mother. This would be an unconscionable act of betrayal Hmm. to say this publicly. You can imagine you're Mary and your brother's like, like, what the heck? And what Jesus is doing is he's paving the way for us to recognize that our healing, our trauma, our regeneration is intended to be sought from, not just by particular people, but from anybody who's willing to pay attention to this. And so in our confessional communities, for Emily in particular, we knew that she wasn't going to be able to receive from her siblings what she really needed to receive. And so part of the work that she was doing was the work of imagining that what she really needs this felt sense of affirmation and validation of what it was like for her growing up in her house, but not just to stay with that, but to move into a space of regeneration that she wasn't even receiving from her church. We want you to receive it here, and we want to be your father and your mother and your brothers and your sisters. We want to be the ones who are doing the will of your father. So much of the life of spiritual formation is about how it is that we have to refocus our attunement because I'm always going to be wanting things from my father that I'm just not ever going to get. I'm always going to be wanting things from my biological family that I may not ever get if they're not willing to be in the middle of the work of transformation. And when we can't get it, Sometimes my, my sense, my reaction to that is like, well, I'm just not going to get it. And I do, I'm just left in a, in a trough of grief and distressed because it's never going to happen. Jesus very plainly saying, no, I want you to turn to those people who are waiting for you, who are going to offer this to you, who want to be your brother, your sister, your father, your mother. And this is an example of how we then move from what we like to say. We're moving always in the healing of trauma. This regeneration, this movement toward integration is always a movement from imagination to incarnation. This notion that we want to take things out of the abstract. We didn't just want to talk to Emily about ideas in the confessional community. We wanted her to have not just an imagined sense of what this can be like. We want you to have an incarnated, an embodied experience of what this is like. And so when she is noticing that people are noticing what she's doing with her body, when people then act toward her in ways that she is able literally to take with her in her imagination when she then goes back to her home. As she's dealing with these things throughout the course of her week, as she said two and three and six months later, I, I, I always, I go back to that moment where we were sitting here and I remember, and I, and I imagined the moment when everybody put their hands in their chest. 
That's what I was going to say. The thing that I, one of the things I loved about that moment as you described it was it wasn't just everybody focused on her and pointing out what she was doing. Mm. The whole community became aware and uh, started doing the same physical exercise to release some of that stuff. Right. And they were working together as a unit and not just what could have maybe even caused her shame and caused her to shut down more became something that made her feel more connected with everybody in the group. I thought that was a, a yeah. really beautiful thing. Yeah. And here's the thing that like, I don't think that I was even expecting, you know, a number of people that very day and then later would go back and recount that moment and talk about how, you know, when I, one person said, you know, when I put my hand on my chest, I suddenly became aware of my own story, places where I get ramped up for the same reasons that Emily does. And I found my story coming into the room and being comforted. Yeah. As odd as it seemed, I found Emily, watching Emily while I also did this, I mean, I was aware that Emily said that we were bringing her comfort. I was finding myself being comforted by Emily doing this. Hmm. And... This is an example of the work of the Holy Spirit, that it is it is always moving toward this state of integration, always taking us from places of trauma, from where we are, imagining that the Spirit is always moving from creation to new creation, from where, if my story is chaotic or rigid, as we've talked about in other episodes, we're moving it toward new creation. And the other thing that we really emphasize for folks is this takes a long time. It- yeah. Yeah. You know, I, the one thing you said um, when Emily came into the office, she came in because she didn't understand why she could didn't want to be with her family was one of the, you know, mm-hmm. but to get from that point to, to discover all these other parts of her story that she wasn't really even aware of with you mm-hmm. and then to take that into the community and then just the time and, you know, effort and everything, it's not, I don't imagine that this happens, you know, in a couple of weeks or, you know, this is going to obviously take a lot of time. Right. You know, it reminds me too, then just this notion of, and even what we're doing now, one of the things that we draw people's attention to in these confessional communities is... And again, this notion moving from uh, imagination to incarnation, especially in the Christian community, we have this penchant for talking about God, talking about Jesus, talking about what we believe. And all of that remains in this category of this abstract thing that is actually separate from my real embodied experience when I'm talking to the clerk at Safeway's checkout counter. Like somehow that doesn't like, yeah, I know, I know that I want to be kind and polite and nice, but the whole notion that like right now God is like standing at the checkout counter, like wanting to use me to love this person into the kingdom. I, I don't like all that's lost on me. I don't, I don't pay much attention to this. But it is in these moments where we say, look, we really want us to be practicing, imagining that what's taking place in the scriptures It's not just an idea. We don't want it to be limited. We want it to be lived out in your body so that when you say, as Paul says in Colossians, for you have died 
and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Emily knows what it means physically for her life in that moment to be hidden in this circle of people. It is so much easier for her to read Colossians, and that Colossians passage is not just some abstract theological precept written by some dude 2,000 years ago. It's happening in the room. Like, this is what it means for me to put to death the part of me that says, I'm not ever going to have a family. I'm not ever going to be cared for. I'm not ever going to be seen, soothed, safe, secure. You just got to make it on your own. You just got to, like, work all the things that our old selves do that we've got to kill, that we have to crucify. And instead, all that's, all that's going to die. And I'm now being hidden in this body of Jesus. This whole notion, though, that this takes a long time, which we understand, that reminds us of Holy Saturday, right? This, this notion of how is it that when these things happened, that we would find that at Good Friday, you know, Good Friday didn't feel good on its own terms. You get to Saturday, you get to the Jewish Sabbath. It's just nothing but anguish and fear. You talk about trauma, trauma to a body of Jesus, trauma to the other people who were part of this community. This long, unending day of Holy Saturday that we've just passed through about a month ago, this, however, all changes with Easter. And Easter makes, Easter makes the trauma of Friday good. Easter is what makes that traumatic day a good Friday. And yet at the same time, we recognize we can know that, but we get to Luke 24, 13 through 35, this story of Jesus appearing to two people who were walking on the day of resurrection, walking to Emmaus. And we're familiar with, they have this conversation along the road and he asks them about all the events and they're kind of incredulous that he doesn't know. And he gets to the end of his travel and he's going to go on and they invite him in for dinner. They sit down and he breaks bread and gives thanks. And in that moment, in that embodied moment, their eyes are opened to who he really is. And it once again is one of these examples of how our trauma is not going to be fully healed if we are only trying to think about it. In our embodied remembrance of those who are coming to find us, in Emily's embodied remembrance of that moment, there is in some respects the breaking of bread, the breaking of someone else's story, others being coming to find her, and then them sharing with her about how her action opened them up to the brokenness of their story. The breaking of the bread, this embodied moment, is when we see Jesus. And, and, and then they said, and did we not say that our hearts were keenly, like mysteriously stirred in his presence? And this who is who we're being called to be to other people. We are being called to develop relationships that are coming to find each other and to do so in the hardest places. Uh, we Christians talk about a theology of atonement. Now, there are multiple different parts of this theology, one having to do with our justification that Jesus really pays a price. We can talk about that. 
One other additional element has to do with the, the literal English word atonement. At comes from at one meant this notion that God is being fully with us, fully at one with us, because I need someone who can go to that length and beyond, given how broken I am, to find me, to heal me, to regenerate me, and to do so in this holy Trinitarian presence, and then invite me to become part of that work on behalf of others. We're reminded, uh, once again, Pepper, of this story of the cellist of Sarajevo, who, you know, we've talked about before here, this notion that he is going to go where the bomb crater is. And that's where he's going to play. And I think of the times when you've done that for me. I think of the times when others have done that. I think of how that community did that for Emily. And we recognize that it takes a long time. Holy Saturday reminds us that this feels like forever in this process. And therefore, remembrance, going back to these, to these places of connection over and over and over again, no matter, like, no matter how thorough this trauma has been, its embodied nature, its relational nature, its systemic, its family nature, its spiritual nature, its religious nature, all these things... Remembering that the most beautiful, most durable artifacts that have ever been created take the longest time to make. And um, Emily's story gives us uh, an example of how we are able to partner together to do this using tactics like we've named, whether it's EMDR or brain spotting or IFS, the kind of work that we do there even or pharmacological intervention, but also that this is not intended just to be something that we do in a clinical setting. We intend to do this in the course of creating a new family of belonging that Jesus makes operational in that story in Mark's gospel. The last thing that I want to name here that we haven't actually talked about in any of our episodes before, but um, something that is particular to our, you know, our, story here in the United States, and and that is the story of racial trauma. And uh, I want to acknowledge that uh, this is is a topic that we could talk about in and of itself for a very, very, very long time. And I would say uh, we need to be talking about, but not just talking about it, but taking action. Uh, My good friends, uh, Greg Thompson and Duke Kwan have written this fabulous book called Reparations. It's generated all kinds of conversation, all kinds of concern, all kinds of, it's gotten all kinds of reactions, but I would commend uh, our readers to think about that along with a wonderful book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menachem. And these are just a couple of resources that I would invite us to consider because uh, this is a reality in our time, in our space. This is not just a thing that happened in our country you know, 400 years ago or 200 years ago or 100 years ago or only, you know, or only 50 years ago. This is an ongoing, this is an ongoing thing. And I I also want to acknowledge that, uh, you know, we are two white guys having this brief conversation about this. And um, I I want to continue to do the work of repair um, with my African-American, my Asian-American, my Hispanic-American brothers and sisters. We need to be about doing the work 
that is that is necessary. And uh, so I just I just want to name that and and also say that I, I you know I, I don't come to this with with authority. I don't I don't come to this like uh, I'm I'm uh, in early in the game, but I, I want to be in the game and. I uh, want to name that because it's it's a big it's it's a really big deal. Um, lastly, uh, as we wrap this up this this episode, um, uh, I want us to consider an application, an exercise that we can do, um, and that's this. This week, uh, I would encourage you just to reflect on the three biblical passages that we discussed here today. Uh, the first being Mark chapter 5, verses 25 to 34. That's the woman with the bleeding condition. Mark chapter 3, verses 20 to 34. That's the story of Jesus and his family. And then Luke 24, 13 to 35, the story of the two folks who were on the road to Emmaus when they meet Jesus. And what I want to invite you to do is that in each story, I just want you to imagine yourself being there in real time and space. I would invite you to even go so far as to imagine being one of the main characters with whom Jesus is interacting. Or you could be a character who's watching this happen or engaged, but allowing one of those characters to be you. And then I want you to be curious about several things. First, imagine if there are any parts of you or your life that are represented by any of the characters. By the woman herself, for instance. By the disciples who were incredulous at Jesus. When Jesus says, hey, who touched me? And they're like, hey, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, what do you mean? What do you, everybody's, like, I, I know that I have parts of me that just want to say, like, what, what are you talking about? I, I don't, I know, I don't, I don't, I don't have, I don't have parts of me that, are, that have come for you. What part, what character is speaking to a part of you and that, that represents some part of you? And pay attention to what that person, either he or she feels themselves to be like. Uh, not least of which in relationship to Jesus. What is it like? What do you sense it is like for the woman if you're watching this happen or if you were that person? What is it like for Jesus to turn his attention to you in that moment where you've been found out, but then he calls you son, daughter. He calls you father, mother. He calls you by your name. And then how does Jesus respond over time? Not just to that character, but to you or to those parts of you that have been traumatized when you encounter him. Notice how you respond to his awareness of you and how this is yet one more way in which Jesus is calling you or that part of you into a place of goodness and beauty. And lastly, uh, as we have done on a number of these episodes, Once you've done all this reflecting, I would encourage you to be doing some writing about all this. I would invite you to find someone that you trust and tell them this. Share this with them. Ask them to reflect to you what it's like for them to hear this story and what part of their own story it generates and evokes for them. And uh, we, you know, we we know that this is, uh, this this season has uh, had some hard things in it. We've had some beautiful things in it. And we're just really glad that uh, you all have been uh, able to kind of be on the ride with us. For sure. And along those lines, um, I know that this has conjured up a lot of questions and different thoughts uh, from our listeners. And next week, we will be collecting some of those questions that or we've collected some of those questions that through social media that, that people have had. And we're going to be wrapping up this season 
by answering um, some of those questions. So uh, be sure to seek that one out. Those of you who are listening or watching on YouTube, we're going to be joining Amy for a post-show conversation here immediately. And if you're listening, you can always head over to our YouTube channel and um, watch those post-show conversations. It's really uh, entertaining, and it's probably the best part of the show. <laughs> a lot of people think it is. All right. Thank you, Kurt. Thanks for this right, day, and, um, and I'll see you next week. Right on. Love you. You too. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.